Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it is time for Tuesday Home Time, the next hour and a half with Joan Bartlett. Today we're going to be talking about the Radiothon, which is happening this Friday. I'll be speaking with Dr Siva from the Australian Medical Aid Foundation. Argentine President Under Attack and the peace plan in Colombia could be threatened. Maria, who was a resident of South America, will be speaking about both of those issues. Afghan and Australian women travelling to India for self-sufficiency training. Oni Wilson was one of those women and she was one of those who organised Afghan women here and Afghan women from Afghanistan to travel to India for training. Part two of my interview with academic and journalist Dr Colin Norton who spent just over a year in Malaysia teaching journalism at a university in Kuala Lumpur but first, let's hear it for Mr. Kevin Healy and just see how he's getting on. And I do believe that he has a birthday this week, but I don't think he's going to tell you about that. A week, Jane, listener, when thankful, appreciative workers discovered their union lived up to its name, they were certainly shocked. Retail workers, shop workers, shop assistants discovered the meaning of a penalty rate. It's the rate they pay their union to negotiate away their wages and conditions, but... But really, the union has just been responsible, recognised it has a duty not only to its members, but to their caring employers and the country as a whole. So in cutting the wages and conditions of young, casual weekend workers, it explains to them they are destroying the national economy, crippling their caring employers, and the sundry caring employers' profits associations have congratulated the responsible union for recognising penalty rates were crippling the economy and preventing people who want to enjoy their weekends, relax with their dear little families from enjoying their weekends, from relaxing with their dear little families. For what use is enjoying and relaxing if it doesn't involve handing your hard-earned to the sundry caring businesses and the sundry caring businesses' side relief? and said this hard-fought slashing of wages and conditions by the union showed that penalty rates are crippling the economy and they will be able to exploit this admission when less responsible, anti-true blue Aussie, evil unions want to maintain crippling conditions. Note, listener, an important lesson here. Potential customers must be allowed to enjoy the times when people want to relax and enjoy their time away from slave labour. Selfish workers who expect penalty rates for extracting that hard-earned by working when people want to relax and enjoy must recognise we now live in a 24-7 world. And no, no, there's no contradiction there. The caring employers and their parliamentary puppets tell us all that in one sentence, so it must be true. Wonder if that union's ever thought of negotiating its workers' wages and conditions in an upward direction. 
The Minister for Going Overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Julie bash up the workers. One hour muse that an idea by great Trubler was he resource exploiter Twitty, nothing for the rest, that union ore producers that iron ore producers like him should agree to limit production so the price would shoot up, was a worth considering. But an hour or so later, as she hopped into the house before managing to extract her foot from her mouth, she heard economic guru Joe Hackey, the workers, continue their parliamentary love affair by suggesting Twitty's brilliant idea might just be cartel behaviour. Although why Joe would worry about that, I've got no idea. But anyway, Julie then decided it might not be worth considering, considering the proverbial was hitting the fan. I am not an expert on iron ore, she told us, but whatever non-expertise she does know about iron ore, it's obviously heaps more than she knows about cartels. Joe launched this discussion paper on tax, premised on his assertion that True Blue Aussie is too heavily reliant on company and personal income taxes. It's made worse, he went on, because we all know... Most companies don't pay any. What? The, well, they exist outside the taxation system? No, no, of course not. They claim all sorts of concessions and subsidies and grants and corporate welfare and pay, paid by are uh, by those who can't avoid personal income tax. There is a proposition in the discussion paper, this is true, that small business pay no tax at all. See, that way they could invest their um, invest the savings in the business and employ more workers who would then pay the taxes their caring employers don't pay. What a smart idea, because they'd never dream of just stuffing the tax windfall in their back kick. After all, they tell us their sole raison d'etre is to, is to provide jobs for the undeserving. Interesting, the different perspectives on the same issue. In this case, the remote possibility, very remote possibility, that superannuation tax handouts to the super rich may be affected, but don't hold your breath. I say, but this, this morning's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review P1, generous super breaks may go. Coverage of same P2, Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin. Oldies tax target <laughs> reflects their respective democratic, demographic targets, I suggest. Tax reform, they call it, and thankfully all the sundry chambers of profits and industry profits bodies who don't pay any tax have all sorts of wonderful ideas to offer on who should pay. They're so helpful, aren't they, when the national interest is up for discussion? Well, well, they know what the national interest is. On Julie hopping around, big supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses should be called the two-minute man. Every day he tells us he's learned his lessons and will consult and, well, all that, and it takes him about two minutes average to jam his foot down his throat yet again. International visitors who don't understand keep asking why he stumbles out the door every morning hopping on one precarious leg with his other leg down his throat. They think it's some true blue Aussie national trait like obsequiously mouthing a yes sir, no sir to the latest US of the UN of the US of the US of the world big supremo. 
And for the fan of the segment, great excitement, celebrity news, but sadly we've had a dearth of the information we so yearn about our dear little Paris, apart from a big feat, but a report in that great source of celebrity news, Lord Rupert's MX on celebrity responses to media questions, will dedicate to Paris's great powers of thinking which we so appreciate. Christina Aguilera. So where's the Cannes Film Festival being held this year? Obviously Cannes work it out. Arnold Schwarzenegger. I think gay marriage is something that should be between a man and a woman. Alternatively, he could just eradicate the problem with the Kalishnikov. Jessica Simpson. Is this chicken that I have or is this fish? I, I know it's tuna, but it says chicken of the sea. No idea why she's a celebrity, but let's hope it's not for her culinary skills. At least Sylvester Stallone was probably tongue-in-cheek, at least we hope so. The only happy artist is a dead artist, because only then you can change. Well, yes, you decompose, but anyway, after I die, he said, I'll probably come back as a paintbrush. Well, it's odds on to be a better actor. Although, if it's really Sylvester, but the best to last, that champion of world philosophy, Brit, Britney Spears. I've never really wanted to go to Japan, simply because I don't like eating fish. Okay, so far, so good. And I know that's very popular out there in Africa. <laughs> well, well, they're much the same, easy to get them mixed up, although I, I can't see her travel guide being a bestseller. Wonder what dear little Paris would make of all that. Probably wonder what we're talking about. Bet she knows Paris is in Texas. That was an almost Paris-free celebrity news. Poor Lord Rupert had so much news like cricket and fashion, he couldn't even squeeze in a line about thousands marching to support refugees and asylum seekers. Well, he only reports real news. Given the hardline socialist principles maintained by the Socialist Party, it's hard to imagine what someone would have to do to get expelled. Well, apart from expressing concern about class struggle or the lot of the victims of class struggle, but there's no risk of that. So we've got to feel sorry for our old mate, the former minister for Just Love Those Resource Profits, Martin Cliché, now a spokesperson for the Resource Profits Association. The Socialist Party wants to expel him just because he turned up in caring business class party election ads in NSW suggesting the Socialist Party's odd criticism of the resource profits industry like a bit of pollution and destroying the environment and privatisation mightn't bring all the cornucopia of riches the community has promised was at the end of the day misinformation a bald lie we can only imagine how Marty's sense of decency in the resource profits industry he works for would be abraded by misinformation and bald lies Bald, appropriate use, reminds us of the landscape after the resource lot have taken their resources and made off with the profits, but Marty has a watertight defence in my opinion. Well, apart from the fact he no longer gets his income from the evil trade union movement or as a rabid socialist on the plush seats, apart from his generous parliamentary pension, and he knows where his bread, bread's buttered, bread and butter's coming from, but no watertight. He just couldn't tell the difference. How was he to know it was the other lot? 
Suspect off with their heads. Public execution is about to be revived in Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country. After all, treason is still on the books as a capital crime, and I can't think of a worst example of treason. Staff at Windsor Castle are threatening industrial action just because they get lousy pay and are expected to carry out all sorts of unpaid duties over and above. For goodness sake, just working for her should be enough. It's, it's bloody selfish to expect to be paid at all. Any wonder Her Most Gracious Majesty wants nothing to do with the working class. It's the ingratitude that hurts. Poor Her Most Gracious. Finally, notice Horogen Energy copped a $2 million fine over a few questionable tactics by its marketing firm signing up customers. It's our duty to ensure, Horogen said, that anyone who represents us reflects our behaviours and values. I would have thought they were. Good afternoon. And you've been listening to Mr Kevin Healy with his week that was, and he'll be on the air again tomorrow morning between 9 and 10 for City Limits. So that's something to look forward to and you are listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR. You could be listening on your radio, 8.55am. You could be listening digital, 3CR. You could be streaming this program for the next week and once that week's up, you'll be able to stream the program for the next week or you could podcast and you'll find most of the information on our webpage which is 3cr.org.au. Media reports worldwide linked the death of the prosecutor pursuing a case against the Argentinian president, Christina Kirchner, to her government's alleged protection of high-ranking Iranian officials in the case of a 1994 bombing of the Argentine Jewish Association, which killed 85 people and wounded 300. But what is behind the headlines? What is the other agenda? Could we be seeing yet another Latin American country threatened for its progressive measures supporting people, not profits, as in Venezuela and Brazil? Maria, who is formerly from South America, returned for a visit recently and one of the countries she visited was Argentina. Maria, the reason why Argentina is in the, the news is because of the, the death of the prosecutor. It, it happened a long time ago. Can you give the background to why this case has come up now and, and what happened back in 1994? You're talking about the case or the bombing that uh, took place long time in 1994 and that left dead 85 people. Uh, that was uh, an investigation. It was uh, a bombing to the main Jewish community centre of Argentina. So that was 1994, but it has been investigated for a long, long time. But the latest investigator who has been doing it for a long time too, and his name, Alberto Nisman, he was found dead in his apartment in Buenos Aires on January the 18th. And the importance of this is that on January the 19th, he was going to go to schedule a meeting for him to talk with the Congress about what he discovered. And apparently, one of the things that he was going to say was that the president, Christina, Christina Kirchner, was covering up the Iranians for not to be nominated as the, the people who were accused 
of doing that bombing. But it's, it's a very complex case because when that happened, when they found this Alberto Nisman dead, there were a lot of speculations and a lot of people used that case for political purposes. Even newspapers, the right-wing newspapers in, in Argentina say things that were not even true. Well, everybody tried to use that case for political purposes. That is why, at the moment, Cristina Kirchner, the president of, of Argentina, is being accused of that, and, and she's having a lot of uh, problems in the country at the moment. I mean, there have been demonstrations and so on by the families of the people who died in 1994, people who were in the, in the bombing. Even there have been so many issues around this topic that it has been even thought that even a journalist wrote that that bombing, it didn't happen the way they said that it happened, right? So it, it's a very complicated case, and it has been used politically to make problems and to make problems for, for Cristina, uh, a left-wing government in Argentina, a government that has done a lot of good things and so on, and, and it has been very important for the unity of the South American countries. Can you just explain the connection between Iran and Argentina and why 21 years later we are still talking about this death? Um, about the, the bombing? Mm. That has to go really quite far away from what happened then because during the time when, when that happened, when the bombing happened, there were um, other governments in there governments that were very close to the United States and Israel. Even this, the government at that time was Menin, I think it was. People think that because he was part of the from a Syrian Lebanese family, people knew the days of the investigation from that time. And the Tinian president Menin had agreed with the U.S. and Israel to blame Iran. And everybody knew that but long time ago. And for the U.S. and Israel, it was, of course, a, a, a very important political game for them. So Menin, the president of that time, the newspaper defined his relations with the United States and Israel as a Cadman relations. That was said by one of the newspapers. So it wasn't only that he wanted to please his friend, but also he was covering up himself. So there were hints that the initial investigation pointed to the Syrian leader, Hafez al-Sad. He financed the presidential campaign on Menins. So can you imagine, this is a very long, very, very long connection to that part of the world. So there is nobody knows really who ordered the AMIA bombing, the bombing of the Israel place that I told you before. They don't know who it was, but the truth is that when, when it was talked about Syria, was never investigated, was never examined. When people say that let's investigate Syria, nobody did that. Because Israel had a lot of interest in, in making sure that Syria was off the hook, no part of this, of this investigation. Look, it's a very complicated thing because there was a conspiracy that the investigation even related to Menin. And Juan Jose Galeano, I think that was the first chap who was in charge of that case. But then he was removed because of the trial at the moment. So it's too complicated, really. It's, it's, it's too many things behind the whole thing. You know, you remember WikiLeaks? WikiLeaks exposed 
that the U.S. Embassy in Buenos Aires was instrumental in giving information to Alberto Nisman all the time. So very hard to really know. I don't know if the truth will, be, will never come up. Who was Alberto Nisman? Alberto Nisman was the attorney. He was the Argentinian prosecutor. Was he an enemy of the of the president? That's a very good question because, you know, now that he is dead, and they were looking for the papers that he, when he was accusing Cristina Kirchner for the of, of the of the Kabinet, the Iranians, they found another version of his paper, and in one version he absolutely accused her. In the other version, he was praising her in December. He had a version, one version in December of 1914. He, he recognized that the government efforts to achieve justice and, and praise President Fernandez's speeches and international actions to solve the case. The other one that he, that he was going to be used in January, he accused the government officials of a high-level covered-up operation involving the president. So we don't know. What really, when she speaks about this, she says that she doesn't know what to believe. The first version that he had in 2014, or the second one in January, the, the, the other one that was dated in January 2015. And apparently, that's what they said, that that version in, in, for January 2015 was appeared after he went, he had been on holidays. And where did he go for holidays? I think he went to Europe, yes. But, you know, now after he's dead, everybody thought that he, yes, they're they talking about this person who is very honest, who was who was trying to do justice and so on. But they have found a lot of uh, things that they were not correct on his behavior. Even his ex-wife is accusing body, the, the person who was working with him, very close, very close with him, of killing him. Uh, he was the, the the man who gave him the weapon. Name, the name of that boy, that man, is a man, Lago Marcino. This woman, Sandra Arroyo, the, 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 his ex-wife, is accused of La, Lago Marcino killing her ex-husband due to money-related issues. So that's what she said. It's, it's, it's becoming really complicated, but at the same time, I don't know if we're going to know the truth. The fact is that it's being used against the president of, of Argentina and the whole of South America is behind her, you know, supporting her. Well, the next question is, why are they targeting her in particular? My point of view will be that Argentina is a very big country. Argentina is very powerful. It's, it's a very important country in the south of, of South America. I don't know if you know about the creation of ALBA, which is the government of the Bolivarian Alliance for the Peoples of American People's Commerce Treaty, ALBA and TCP, this organization has done amazing things. Some people don't, don't like what this, this organization is doing. This organization has as members a lot of, of the important countries in South America, Latin America, and too. For example, I would tell you some of the things that this ALBA has produced. Can you imagine this? ALBA has produced some 21,075 doctors that they have been uh, studying in the School of Medicine in, in Cuba, and also 1,590 medical specialists. They also have done over 3 million people have undergone surgery to have the eyesight improve or recovery at no cost. 
So I can imagine why they will attack any country in the Spanish speak in the Latin America who will be part of this and who is. One thing that maybe people don't know is that this ALBA created a currency, and the currency is called Sucre. The moment, this is a data that I got, very reliable data, it says, today, 5,657 transactions, totaling 2.5 billion U.S. dollars, had taken place using the Sucre. So that currency was developed by ALBA, so that international trade will not depend on U.S. currency and exchanges. So that is a very big thing that, you know, it has to be attacked, you know, and, and that's why Venezuela is also attacked and so on. So they had done a lot of other things, like, for example, one of the very important things that I would like to mention is that this organization called the Food and Agriculture Organization, not the, the FAO, or the UN, the UN, the United Nations, declared Nicaragua, Bolivia, and Ecuador that had made significant progress in the area of the clay of not being people hungry in the countries. So, people from Grenada, from St. Vincent, Venezuela, and Cuba have been declared hunger free by this organization. And those kind of things, um, you know, are difficult for people to accept that that's the way that this, the Latin American countries are going through. You know, they're going to be independent and, you know, so they also, one thing that I really want to talk about, to say, is that they had managed to teach, to learn how to read and write using a method called Yes, I Can, designed in Cuba. A total of 3,850,092 people have become literate in the region. UNESCO has declared ALBA members Antigua and Barbuda, Bolivia, Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela as illiterally free territories. So people don't know these kind of things that have been done in the last years in, in Latin America, and that's why it's such a big, big campaign not to uh, let Venezuela continue, Argentina, to change government and, and so on, because they are all together. They are working together towards getting a better a better situation for the Latin American countries. You have visited Argentina recently. What were you told from the people well, there about the changes there? First, as a, a person that was visiting, I was very impressed by Argentina, very impressed from the infrastructure. I travel all in public transport. I travel, I travel by buses from, from towns to towns. And, and the service was fantastic. The roads were great. I talked to some young people and so, so different people that I had opportunity to talk to because I discovered a, a theater that where they only show in Argentinian films. When I discovered when we discovered that, we were very happy to go and, and visit in this um, see Argentinian films because they are very good. I had opportunity to talk to people there, and now some people say, "Look, the fact that we go." At, university free of charge and they had some very good universities they are also private universities i'm not saying that they don't have any private universities they do have private universities too but the government universities are fantastic and one thing that i noticed was we had opportunity to be involved in university since there were a lot of students from colombia from paraguay amazing a lot of people go there to, to study because they it's free of charge of course you have to do work to to support yourself you know point of view of 
food and so on. But the fact that you don't have to pay the university fees is, is a very big thing. I saw a lot of things that had, from my point of view, progress, you know, and uh, I really thought that Argentina is going with a, through a very good path, you know. I saw a lot of constructions and new things. They're developing new hydroelectric things for electricity and so on. So I, I was very impressed. And are these things in private hands or public hands? Uh, no, they are in, in public hands. They are in public hands. They are not private, no. no. And is there no push for privatisation or is there a push? I didn't see any push for privatisation. Uh, you know, I, I thought that... Everything is done through public means. One thing that I was impressed with, which maybe people don't think that is important, but for me it was all the little towns that I passed through in the bus had a fantastic transport terminal, and that was public. And that, I thought that that was fantastic. They, they were great, very good services, and a fantastic service. For example, let's see the toilet. You have toilet paper and you could give a donation to an organization that was there, any organization, women's organization, a way of collecting money. It was interesting to see that kind of the activities. I noticed, Maria, when you're talking about the countries in South America, Colombia is not one of the ones that you are talking about as being progressive. Can you explain what's happening in Colombia at the moment? I know that there is a peace plan. What's happening? Those peace plans had a lot of enemies and also had a lot of people who are interested in, in that something happens there. But the situation in Colombia is, is very complex because there are a lot of parts to it. In one side we got the paramilitaries, in another side you got the government, in another side you got the guerrillas, the people who are doing the talks at the moment. But there are not only one movement, guerrilla movement, there are two guerrillas very strong. So they, I think that they are trying to get both of them to the table. But the problem is that they are asking and demanding for things that a government who is aligned to the United States can give. Like, for example, they, they oppose privatization of all resources, they oppose privatization of, of the education system and so on. And those kinds of things are very difficult for the government to accept and, and to have real conversations and real uh, understanding of what these people want. So it's not a very easy thing to get to. I don't trust the Colombian government to really respect the lives of these people if they go back to Colombia, right? Because long time ago, there was an agreement of an organization that decided to give up their weapons and, and they killed one by one. And they were elected in, in positions, being mayors in little towns, and they killed one by one. This is completely true. So I don't know what could happen. I mean, how Colombia will change, I cannot see, because Colombia is potentially a very rich country, very rich. And it's the most survived country to the interest of the United States. And that's the problem. You know, they just signed an agreement, well, not just some time ago, signed an agreement, free trade with the United States, and is destroying every single thing that, that Colombia used to have. You know, production of clothes and, and things like that. I mean, it's just not possible to have any companies in Colombia anymore because they're getting things from... from it's like seeing oranges here from the United States, and it's the same that's happening in there. You know? 
how can we have such a great weather, such a great, being a tropical country, you could produce all your food all year round, and then you buy things from another country. When you got very good produce there, that is beyond me, really. It's very difficult to understand. Right now, the talks, I think that they stopped for a while and, and they were going to come back, and I don't know if they had started again. Why then are the FARC in these peace talks and if they're putting forward proposals that they know that the government won't accept? They had to try. I mean, you had to try. You had yep. to try. Have they tried before? This wouldn't be the first time, surely, that they've tried for peace. They had tried before, but it's not because it's not then. They're not the one who gives the parameters of how the conversation is going to be. They don't have the power. You know, That's so. right. And also, the other thing you have to understand is that in Colombia, the government really doesn't have the power, like many, in many other countries. It's the military, really. So the military has to agree with all the things that both sides are, are planning to do. You know, so it's very complicated, you know, because... And, on, and the other part of the Colombian situation is that because there are a lot of inequality, there is a lot of just crime. That is also very hard. The moment I think that one of the things that the FARC used to do, which I don't agree with, was to have uh, kidnapping. And at the moment, that has stopped, which is something that people are very happy with, because they are in conversations and that has stopped. But it hasn't stopped from the criminal's point of view. So there are criminals also who do kidnapping and so on. So. Who controls the drugs in Colombia? That's a very difficult question. I had no idea because the different cartels. At the moment, I have been hearing that Medellin, who used to be the biggest, one of the biggest cartels, is going into a very nice phase of being quite, being nice and not dangerous and a beautiful place. They have developed a lot and so on. There is another um, cartel in Cali, the capital of Valle del Cauca. I don't know. I couldn't answer that question. That would be a very hard thing to do. You know? Are the drugs manufacturers in Colombia or they come from elsewhere and go up north? I think that um, they go the raw material. They used to use Bolivia and uh, other countries to... But also there are a lot of places there who they do it, but they are persecuted a lot. So they do have a lot of labs in Colombia, hidden in the mountains. Colombia is a very mountain ranges. So it's not easy to, you know, to control because they have the plants hidden in the mount, in the jungles and so on. So it's, it's not easy to control that kind of situation in Colombia. Mm. Is there fear in Colombia or with the, the fighting that has stopped now but it could start any minute? Have the people sort of got used to violence or does that violence take place in certain parts of Colombia and most of the people don't realise it's happening? There are a lot of people from the United States and from other countries that go to Colombia and they will go to places where nothing happens and they've seen that Colombia is a paradise. Colombia could be a paradise for a lot of people. You've got fantastic weather, fantastic scenery, fantastic places to see, and you can go and see all those things and don't see anything and don't realize or be exposed to anything. But to answer the question about the people, it's interesting because the people, you just continue living, you know. You can't let fear to run your life, you know. You just continue living. You know that those things happen Yes, but it's true. It, it happens in, in certain areas mainly. But, you know, the crimes and all those kinds of things happen everywhere. 
And that's Maria, who now lives in Melbourne, a former resident of South America. You're listening to 3CR. It's now 4.34. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. Just 25 bucks each. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on, what's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. 3CR broadcaster and activist supporting Afghan women, Oni Wilson has recently returned from a visit to India, where three cultures met, linking women from Afghanistan with women from India and women from Australia. I asked Oni first what the genesis for this project was. We have supported Malalai Joya in the past, and we have had her here on a, a number of occasions and, and run a, a speaking program for her. In case people don't know who she is. She was uh, voted into the first parliament um, after the invasion of Afghanistan and she represented Farah province, so that's where she comes from. So it's really a forgotten province, it's in, it's in the southwest. It doesn't get aid, most provinces don't get aid for women, but that it, it's even less of it in the, that area. When uh, Malalai Joy was here last time, Speaking about the situation in Afghanistan, we said to her, is there a, some way, ongoing way that we can support women in your province? Because she had spoken quite a lot about how inadequate things were for women there. The suggestion was that, that we somehow financially sponsor a project in Farah with women that uh, Malala Joya would select and they would decide the project. We'd just be the backup, really. So that's where it came from. So it started about two years back, this particular thought of an ongoing project, and we had thought about something which would be more self-sufficient eventually without us. We have in the past just sent money. It's used and gone, but for this one it was hopefully going to be set up self-sufficient. So we thought about microfinance as a means, a tool of, of doing that. We started looking around for an organisation that some Afghan women um, that Joya chose could go to and, and train using these sorts of methods. So it was actually Sue Kenny from Deakin Uni who suggested SAWA, the Self-Employed Women's Association. And that's a very large women's organisation. It's been going since 1972. So it started off really as a trade union support for women uh, who were not in major mainstream economic enterprises, so home-based, etc. It was quite a long process to actually find the right person to be asking the question of could we come to, to Sewa and train with them, have a training period. Again, it's taken you know, this whole two years to do the fundraising and to actually get this training set in motion and also for Joya to select the three uh, that she thought would be potential leaders in the future, young women, 
to do the training. That's where it all started. And what were their situations back home, these three young women? One of them is linked to Malala Joya, works with her. Uh, Malala Joya has a support group which is called the Defence Committee, um, Malala Joya Defence Committee, which really is a group of supporters who financially support her and they also uh, support her as administrators as well. They're spread in different parts of the globe. Some are in Afghanistan, some are in Pakistan, and some, I think, are even more widely dispersed than that. And these young women are part of that. Shaheen is actually a, a significant part of that. She often works with Melody Joya in, in Kabul, and she does a lot of PA work and you know, is fairly significant. The other two, they're younger. They've just finished their secondary schooling and they're, they're just started at university. And, and Farah Province has only just started uh, accepting women into the university there. So those two have just started a teaching degree. Um, actually, one of them uh, wanted to do medicine, but had the background for it, but her family couldn't afford it. It was going to cost for seven years $14,000 which was well out of their reach. So those two have been not major contributors to the Defence Committee, but have been linked to it. So there was no problem with families allowing these young women to travel to India? No, remarkably. Shaheen is based predominantly in Herat, in the, in the city, where the other two are more in the, the, the rural part. Uh, Negan and Durkshan are their names. And those two girls, their fathers, both of them were thrilled that their daughters had been given this opportunity. I think one, her father, again, had wanted to be a doctor, but he ended up being a teacher. So they, they, both of those families are quite strongly supportive of their daughters being educated and having this really fantastic opportunity. From what you know of Afghan society, and I dare say over the years you know a great deal, is that unusual? that these girls would have the opportunities that they're having? Yes, it is. And, and I think it's becoming more common amongst younger people. Certainly in the last 10 or, or so years, there's been a very strong um, young people's movement to be demanding that there be education for girls and, and boys also being aware to more gender equality. For those who are the more educated families, you will find there's more inclination to be considering that, that girls should be playing a factor, but I, I think in the older age group they're more a minority than they are the general uh, run of them, of the community. How many people came from Australia? Uh, the six of us from Australia, so two Afghans and four non-Afghans. And what's the two Afghan women's stories? They're wonderful women. Gula Bezan, she, she came here um, a considerable time ago. She was a doctor in Afghanistan. Her brother first came here. That was the time of you know the Northern Alliance period where her brother and his wife, she was a doctor and he was working at Kabul University and they were met with military who said, go home or we'll kill you. And they did go home and uh, Amina Bezan, who's, the, who, who's his wife, started practising from home but again was threatened do this and you're killed. So they really had no option but to leave the country. The usual story, they went to Pakistan and then they started applying everywhere to relocate and, and just whatever came up, you know, that's where they went. And you know, getting a thing saying Melbourne, Australia, and I wonder who that is. <laughs> Our benefit, they're both uh, wonderful. And um, Amina is fantastic. She has retrained as a doctor here 
And uh, if anyone's out in the Dandenong area, I can give her a plug. If you see Amina Bazan on the plate, go for it because she's a stunning doctor. So that's where they came from. When they came out, then Farid himself is a, a very liberal-minded fellow and he had encouraged his younger sisters, um, which is Gula and her sister Farida, to be educated. So I think the pressure, the family pressure at that time was for them, you know, well, you should not go back to school and be and uh, or to university. You should really just get married. Their father had died at this stage and he said, no, you must go to university. So... Gula became a doctor and um, Farida a teacher. They came out here as a consequence of, of him being here. And Gula, she then um, got married and she then fairly soon had three small children and so the thought of, of trying to retrain as a doctor was just beyond her. So she now works in settlement work out in Dandenong and uh, Farida has now just taken on a job as um, a teacher's aide out in that area as well. They're fantastic family it's more than that you know the usual generosity um that afghans have and and those two sisters in particular are extremely committed to supporting afghans in need here and in afghanistan and gula certainly works support she's got an organization the afghan women's organization victoria which is trying to support women who are in need here and there's quite a lot of widows who are come here from past government's policy illiterate women often, very isolated, very frightened and intimidated by the whole scenario of being a woman alone here without much education or skills for working. And so she's done amazing things with them. I think the last event we had was um, a need event, which 400 women turned up just to have a magnificent night together. And that's all to for the um, credit of Gula. What was the logistics of getting nine women together from two parts of the world? <laughs> oh, look, Jan, my hair started off blonde and now look at it. No, it's just completely grey. I've gone almost white. A very difficult scenario. The, the mystery of getting Afghans um, from Afghanistan to India was truly a, a very big mystery. I mean, it's hard enough to try and organise to get them here. Um, but at least you know you have uh, access to immigration departments. Not that they give you the correct information exactly all the time, but at least you, you know where to go to try and get something. For, for for it to happen, for Afghans to get there, that was very hard. And and certainly for the the two girls in Farah province, that meant that if they did have to meet up with Shaheen in Herat, it's a very dangerous two or three hours on the road driving to get to the capital city there. And so I was was really concerned about what would happen, how they would actually get on this plane. And if, if, uh, I don't recommend trying to book a plane online from Afghanistan to India. It's a very difficult scenario and it's a, sort of like a mystery as to how it all functions. The plane was to go from Herat to Kabul to Mumbai to Ahmedabad. Um, and so each step of that way I was quite concerned as to what the security would be. So even the stopover periods um, of being in Kabul, thinking, how many hours is that going to be? Like, all those hours are dangerous hours. I mean, we think, oh, oh, you know, two hours in Singapore, you know, I'll just do a bit of shopping or something, you know, duty-free. But for them, for me, thinking two hours in Kabul, that's maximum because anything could happen. Three girls together is very conspicuous and dangerous. And for them, they were arriving a little bit before us as well, um, an hour or so. So I was trying to organise with India 
as to how they would get from the airport to where we were staying. So even that was a, a bit of a nightmare of, and, a, and a mystery as to whether it would actually happen because things in India don't often happen as you expect them to happen either. So even though you think you've, you've, you've nailed it and you've got something in writing and guaranteed, not necessary that this will take place. So when we arrived at the place we were staying and they were there, it was like true celebration. So, yeah. <laughs> so there was no hitches at all? Not on the way over, no. Not on the way over. There wasn't no hitches. We all managed to get there exactly as we should have. So that was a big relief. Certainly was. And that's Honey Wilson talking about the first part of the journey, the journey from Australia for her and five or six others and for the three women from Afghanistan. Next week we'll hear what they did when they were in India. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR. Radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. Again on Good Friday, a radiothon will be held here at 3CR to support the Australian Medical Aid Foundation. To explain why the radiothon is held, what it has achieved over the years and how you can donate, I'm speaking with Dr Siva. Can you first outline the reasons AMFAF was established and when? The Australian Medical Aid Foundation was established in uh, 2001 and it has been functioning uh, quite well over the last uh, 14 years. Uh, our main aim was to help with the infrastructure of the northeastern province and uh, where it was war torn at that time and also help with the charities over here in Australia and other parts of the world where there is a need for medical help. We have been concentrating on the northeastern parts of Sri Lanka for a while because the demands for, from that area was uh, keep on coming. And how has that changed over the years? Initially, during the war time, the demands were much greater because the infrastructure was totally destroyed and the medical hospitals and uh, facilities were underfunded or they weren't uh, provided with the necessary equipment. Uh, Recently, there's some improvement uh, in that uh, they do have uh, items and medical facilities uh, there, but uh, still in the remote areas and uh, where there have been refugees around, uh, the facilities have been, uh, to say the least, very, very substandard. Are there fairly major hospitals in that area, or are we talking more about small health clinics? There are provincial hospitals, uh, or rather district hospitals in uh, some places. Uh, we could count them. They, they, they are not that many, maybe five to six, but most of the area is uh, managed by smaller units, which we call peripheral units, where their people are sparsely populated. Uh, the facilities are much less. problem now we have is that there are so many refugees uh, who were sort of affected by the war and who have lost their breadwinners uh, living in squalid conditions. 
and these people need uh, urgent help to sort of revamp and revitalize their lives. And what are the major health problems that you've found in those areas? It's mostly malnutrition, uh, diseases like malaria, diarrheal diseases, uh, children's not uh, having uh, their nutrition. In addition to that, we have this problem of war-torn injuries, uh, people having lost their limbs, people having had uh, bullets in their bodies, people having uh, scars and disfigurements. Uh, these people need urgent surgeries. In addition to that, the war has left with them severe mental trauma, and most of them are psychiatrically ill, needing lots of uh, counseling and support. Uh, we are providing with uh, mental health support with, through the network. We were fortunate that uh, over here, the University of Melbourne uh, came to our help and uh, they called in uh, 10 psychiatrists to give them leadership training. And that has been a wonderful help uh, to those psychiatrists who are now leading the way and uh, managing the sub uh, subordinate staffs. So you're saying that doctors from Australia actually go over to Sri Lanka to Yes, assist we do, there? and we did that in uh, during the tsunami time. There would have been about 100-odd uh, medical personnel, including doctors, about 10 of them. And so we took uh, turns uh, of five people at a time, and we went there, stayed there for a couple of weeks and helped them for over three months. Optometrists do go and distribute uh, glasses to the, those people who are in need. ICCE uh, here was very helpful. They uh, donated some uh, spectacles which we were able to take over there and distribute to the, those people who couldn't uh, afford to buy any spectacles. Just give us an idea of, of what was raised last year in the, in the radiothons and, and, and where that money went to. Yes, over the last 14 odd years, I mean, more, more than the money, the help from various uh, donations and uh, uh, equipment uh, amounts to at least uh, two to three million. But uh, last year the fundraising was around a hundred thousand mark. But Rotary Clubs and other other associations uh, took part in the revamp and revitalization of these areas. So uh, yes, around that uh, mark we have been raising, and uh, that is mainly from the donations over here and. Uh, we, we are an association uh, sort of affiliated with ECWID. So our associations are generally audit, uh, well audited and presented at the annual general meeting, and there is uh, always transparency about uh, the funds that we spend. Most of the money we spend through for, for purchasing equipment in Colombo or other places, or, and then we don't uh, give this out money to any other organization. So we only pay the vouchers or invoices for the medical equipment provided, uh, so it's all in, uh, very, very transparent. What's changed up there since the new government? Yes, the current government uh, has taken office only for three months. As you know, there was a change in the leadership. There are some positive signs, but uh, at the same time, they haven't opened the doors for expatriates to go and uh, stay there and help. Uh, it probably will come, I suppose, uh, but uh, we, we haven't had any restrictions in our efforts to provide medical equipment. But the problem is that they have been already having some suspicion as to the foreign doctors, particularly if they belong to the Tamil minority, they suspect that uh, they could come with some other motive. So there has been always a scrutiny, but uh, uh, when we want to help uh, the 
bad areas, uh, we have been able to do a fair amount of help uh, uh, without a much hindrance from the government. And what are your plans for the next year? We have to start some few projects. So mainly the one that we are aiming uh, some in the intensive care units in Manor and uh, Delft areas. Uh, these are uh, war-torn areas where there's no emergency finding facilities. It's a critical care center that we would like to do. Uh, we also want to provide some pathology equipment, so pathology testing equipments to three hospitals, uh, one in the north, one in the central province, and one in the east. There's also a cry for help from a mortuary area in uh, the far east, uh, in a place called Ari Empathy. Uh, this is a mortuary in a dilapidated conditions, hardly any facilities such as air conditioning or to keep the dead uh, for a while till uh, they are subjected to any coroner's inquiry or postmortem. So we need to undertake that as well. We have been involved in some children's projects such as the hearing and eyesight projects. We'll continue to do that. We have been supporting medical students and doctors when they are underpaid in remote areas. We'll continue those projects. What do you know about the situation in terms of housing and education for the children at the moment and the stability in their lives which will also help their their physical yeah. well-being and their An mental well-being? directly involved but I would say that they are they are they are of paramount importance the housing and education in these areas definitely below standards and uh, much below the standards of the Australian community here the problem is there has been a stepmotherly treatment to the northeastern province for a long time and uh, these places have not been uh, given the land rights or uh, housing uh, projects to go ahead and the expatriates are not willing to go and invest there to pro start housing or educational facilities, mainly because of the suspicions that um, the government might clamp down on them or not allow their business investment to continue. They are substandard. The educational facilities in the north are being supported by the old boys here, so they, they are coming up a bit. Uh, the housing in the Oton areas are the problem and it needed to be addressed as soon as possible. But as I said, uh, we, as we are concentrating entirely on the medical facilities, uh, this housing uh, uh, projects we are not uh, undertaking at the moment. What happens on Good Friday? Good Friday is our annual Radiothon appeal to anyone who would like to go join hands with us and contribute to these medical infrastructure development. Uh, and also to help uh, to the uh, give medical help to the needy, such as the stent, uh, blood glucose monitoring, you know, multipara monitors, and etc. Go on and with the assistance of general assistance of the 3CR radio, which have su supported us over the last 14 years. Uh, we we have a, a radiothon running from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. and it's sort of uh, attended. It's well attended, and a lot of uh, youngsters. A lot of people do come over there and on that day and uh, we appeal over the radio giving details of what we have done and what we are going to do and thereby we solicit some financial support and raise the money for our medical work. And are you using 3CR's ordinary phone number? Yes, we do. That's 94198377? That's right. On, uh, on Good Friday, the coming April 3rd, uh, uh, anyone who... Will, who are willing to support this uh, noble work can ring 94198377 uh, or that is the 
AM 855 3CR uh, radio on that day and uh, give their funds and we would thank them uh, from the bottom of our heart uh, for what they have done. Okay, thanks, Doctor. Okay, thanks for taking giving me the opportunity to talk to our people. And that's Dr. Siva. And if you would really like to assist, give a call sometime or listen in on Friday between 9 and 6 and give them a call on 94198377. I'm sure you know that phone number off by heart. And if you'd like to get a bit more information on the Australian Medical Aid Foundation, you can look at the website, which is www.ausmedaid.org.au. And that's the Radiothon this Friday. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. Finally on Tuesday Home Time, the second and final part of my interview with Dr Colin McNaughton, who recently returned to Melbourne after working in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, as a lecturer in journalism at the School of Arts and Social Science at Monash University Sunway Campus. We continue with Colin speaking about the refusal of the government to allow the ashes of Jinping, well-known Malaysian communist, to be returned to Malaysia, and what happened when he asked his class to write an essay about the ashes of Jinping and the communist insurgency. And the room was deadly silent. It was mostly Chinese kids, and you could just see they were just going, you what? So anyway, it was very interesting because the feedback, some people, you know, they, they did it, and they, they got into it in, in the end, and they wrote really good stories and whatever. But what was interesting was some people came back to me and said, oh, Colin, that was amazing because I spoke to my grandfather for the first time in my life. I've never really had a reason to talk to him, and then we did, and I, I opened up this topic, and he talked to me. But now he actually told me about his role in this process. Or well, other people would come and say, well, you know, my family were killed by those murdering communists and la, la, la. Other Chinese people, because it was obviously there was a fraction inside their country. But my point was, and what I tried to do in that course, was to actually make people at least you know who you are. You know who you come from. It's not, I'm not trying to suggest what the answer is, but what is this thing called history that Umno is so afraid of and people are so terrified by? I don't think there's an absolute answer as to, oh, it means this or it means that. Our example is the whole Indigenous history here. I mean, we can point fingers at Malaysia, but we've got our own versions of this exactly. And the whole, you know, secret whisperings and all that sort of stuff about, you know, killing blackfellas left, right and centre. How you actually engage with that. It's not necessarily a question of, you know, I know the answer to it. Keeping a space open where the question can be asked and where it can be interrogated, etc. And some of these kids, I don't think have ever actually done that before or had that sort of experience. Now, I'm not saying they're off to go and do uh, journalism because actually writing that, I mean, people did write it in the different media, including the sort of state media, etc. But it is very difficult to sort of talk about Chin Peng because it, uh, it's, it's just one of those little things that, 
just sets the cat among the pigeons in the community and you can feel the hearts flutter and the the silence becomes sort of deadly and you're just like okay so that was an example so instead of avoiding it like let's sort of open it up why were most of your students chinese uh, well, Monash University, which is who I worked for, they're basically a, a private university, if you will, you know, Monash Inc., if you will, the Malaysian sort of little subsidiary. Most of the university places are kept for Malaysian kids, so whether they pass or not. So that's part of the whole sort of, you know, let's call it racial apartheid, let's call it what it is. So I think you get a, some sort of percentage, like 5 to 10% of actual Chinese kids can get into Malaysian universities and the rest either have to leave the country or go to private universities and pay. So this is part of the sort of, you know, the deep rumblings underpinning. The state pays for most of the Malaysian kids, not only to train in their own universities, but if they want to go to Europe or America or wherever, they'll pay for them to go and do that study. Chinese and the Indian kids, you've got to pay for everything, and you probably and you can't get access even if you wanted to, and you probably have to go to private universities and pay there or leave the country. That's just one of the many. And the kids are knowledgeable about this. And they know that, you know, the Malaysian kids will get, I don't know, let's say 50%. And they're getting into whatever top university. And they're getting 70 or 80 or 90 or whatever it is. And they have to go and figure out something else, leave the country, whatever. So this is part of the sort of deeper, let's call it malaise within Malaysian society. Is there both overt and covert racism in the society as a whole? Yeah, it's incredibly subtle. The biggest element of this is the legacy of the British because you've got to understand that while there was a decolonisation process in terms of Britain ostensibly leaving, it really didn't actually happen. What it was is in other countries like in Indonesia, for example, there was actually a war against the Dutch and there was a whole process that went on and it's still ongoing, you could argue, at a whole lot of levels. Malaysia was a bit of a backroom deal between the British and the Umno guys to basically divvy up the wealth. And so in 1972, for example, Britain still owned 60% of Malaysian wealth. So the actual rebuilding of Britain after the Second World War was largely funded by the tin mines and the rubber plantations in Malaya. But the workers were the Indians? Oh, well, the, the tin mines is more the Chinese and the rubber plantations more the Indians. It's really understanding the nature of British racism and colonialism. Then you can start to unpack the layering. And it's not just a question of racism in the sense of attitude, because it's deeply structural and it's deeply about an internalised self-hatred, a love of the master. One of the things that really irked me the whole time I was there was the love of the Union Jack. This symbol was on shoes, T-shirts, wallets, everywhere. It was so latent, but so fertile. Now, what is this thing? And the, the whole thing, and this is one of the sort of most disturbing things about being in Malaysia, where there's this, not only at the university, but everywhere, where if you're white, then you must be right. If you're from Australia or Britain or, you know, English speaking, then you must be right. Have you been to those countries? Have you seen and the complexities of what this so-called whiteness is and it's all of its crazinesses? I mean, but there's this thing of the, you know, white people are all good. So quite often you'd be in the street and some guy would come up to you and say, hey, excuse me, hey man, how's it going? Yeah, can I have a photo with you? And the main reason is because you're a white guy. The internalised race, and there's been no decolonisation process in Malaysia that I can understand or see. And the little one that was started by the Chinese, largely the Chinese Communist Party, was sort of destroyed or pushed underground and it never really happened. So you have this process where you went from colonial empires, where Britain, first of all as a colony and then as a neo-colony, was just thieving just so much wealth out of Malaysia. And part of that process was the sort of internalised self-hatred of everything Malaysian, dark, brown, and all the different colours you have in the Malaysian sort of archipelago, literally. And so when you're trying to understand racism, I think you've got to understand racism in that historical context. And so how the Chinese relate to themselves, Chinese Malay here, the Indians 
and the Malay, it's very much through that prism of how history sort of moved and the British used them to set them against each other so they could control, divide and rule and then how that was picked up by Umna and reproduced and now it's been internalised for generations. So in terms of that, the quality of racism, it's mind-boggling. And they've kept those repressive laws from the British Times. The Official Secrets Act, etc., they all come from British pens, so to speak, and they've actually just been reworked and revamped, etc. The deifying, really, of British culture and British people and British, you know, anything to do with the Union Jack. It's not just the question of, you know, racism in terms of exclusion, the whole racial apartheid of Indians and Chinese. There's another layer, even more unsubtle, which is that everything about Britain is the best and that we're sort of some outer reach from the real, the really good stuff. And so, so it's like that Australian cringe, but it's got a sort of a different sort of a colonised mentality in it. Because Australia's obviously had that for a long time. Maybe now we're starting to break it at certain levels. But there's, this is another dimension of it. Trying to talk about that. So you see really good, like I'll call them magical realist artists making their films. And people just totally missing the point or missing what they're trying to talk about. They're using this whole, well, let's call it trope of ghosts, etc., how history haunts the present, etc. It's partly about colonialism. But people just don't get it. They think it's about ghosts. And it is, but it's allegorical. You're talking in Malaysia. You've got to tell a story to tell a story. You, you can just say it, but people aren't, haven't got the, the tools to be able to interpret. I don't just mean this at an intellectual level, but at a whole lot of levels, actually how it works. Where in some other parts, say, for example, being in Latin America... You'll meet kids, and they, they do. They fully understand how it works. Well, and it's a great so- way to keep people under control, isn't it? Well, it's stunningly brilliant. And it's like, we will train you to hate yourself, and then you can reproduce what we made, and then you can make it into an art form and call it a nation state. And you just go, well, where do you start with that one? Because I don't really know where you can go with that. That's a level of... I don't know. It's like it's that Nietzsche quote of beware when you look into the abyss because the abyss will start to look into you. It's that. And you've been having a good look in the abyss. And the abyss is having a good look in you. And it's like, well, where do you go from there? Like even just looking at recently at what happened with Anwar Ibrahim and the whole sodomy. He was number two at one stage to Mahathir. He's part of that ruling class. And it was basically a debate about whether to go with the IMF or to go Mahathir's way. That was what the fundamental debate was about, an economic one. And he lost. But now he's going back to jail. And he's the so-called opposition. And when you get on the ground and you talk to people, it's like even the notion or the possibility of an opposition has to be precursed. Like Malcolm X said, or Paulo Freire, or all those sort of great anti-colonial thinkers, on some loving of yourself, knowing yourself, knowing your own history, how can you have an opposition of any sort of political form if you don't even know who you are and where you're coming from and your own place in that world? But also to use sexual orientation as the weapon. Sexual orientation, but that's really playing to sort of the conservative Muslim guys who are just going, this guy's against the laws of God. And that's really what that's trying to do. In Australia, if you do that, people are like, is that really a big deal? I mean, even if they are homophobic, it's not really like, do I really care? But in the, some of those Islamic communities, it is a big deal. And it's, it's not so much it's a big deal in terms of it's a crime of itself. You're going against the word of God as they understand it. You're using a spiritual argument which is a whole lot harder to argue about. If you're going to argue politics or the IMF or which way to go in terms of the economic crisis, and, and that's really what his debate with Mahathir was about, about how to actually work their way out of the economic crisis of 98, you can argue that. But how can you argue in that context, oh, no, that's not the word of God or it isn't? 
not really open for great debate. He can't win it. Well, where does that leave the Versailles movement? Surely they can't win either. Well, they're and trying they to find... yet they seem to get fairly close. Well, they're trying time. to find cracks. But this thing is, you know, maybe as an outsider, I see these sort of feudal layers and how do you want to deal with this? And Australia has this, maybe not feudal because of the, the nature of the colonisation, but we have our own sort of historical dynamics. So it's not just saying... Oh, look at these guys, and why aren't we so grand? On the contrary, even those Bursaide movements, how do you deal with these legacies of not asking questions of authority? When they're talking about creating you know, human rights, they use this word human rights. What does that mean in the context in which they're coming out of? When people don't really know their own history, and for decades they've been sort of dispossessed politically and even linguistically and a whole lot of levels. And so how do you actually create the subjects the social forces, the social movements, the civil societies, the et cetera, that can actually be part of a real opposition. And that's still questions they don't really have an answer to and they're struggling with. In the, the very narrow frame of liberal democracy, they're sort of trying to make a debate. But the point being, in the Malaysian context, the power doesn't sit with liberal democracy. The power sits with the feudal, the sultans, and they're not taking that on. Obviously, because they do that, they're going to be in a world of shit. But the point being, that's actually where the power lies. Like with us, our version of a similar thing is ours is the Reinhards and the Murdochs. I mean, we can say whatever we like and we can talk about Abbott. But, you know, Murdoch says, I want this one in, I want this one out. Now, Abbott said he didn't want to. Just watch what's going to happen to Abbott. It's like we've seen it happen numerous times. He says, I've given Rudd the OK or the tick. Who gets in next? If Mr. Murdoch says, or Gina says tends to be that they do have a bit more say than you or me or anyone listening at this present moment. In the situation that you've been talking about, where do workers' rights fit in and what work do people do in Malaysia? It's a very difficult area because the work and the processes people can be involved in are actually also still racialized. For example, if you want to be a street hawker and make fried kwe tiao or nazi lemak or whatever you like and make a bit of dough doing that, even if you do have another job, if you're Malay you pay, say, $80 a month. But if you're Chinese, you pay $2,000 a month rent or Indian. So you're actually marginalised in terms of employment. And that's not at that level. That's at the civil service, the military, military intelligence, da 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 police, every single level. Okay, you want to do this job? Great. What's your race? This tells you about everything about what's going to happen. Now, yes, they do have Chinese police officers and Indian police officers, but it's still sort of organised. And, yeah, you can do this and you can do that. So there's still these hierarchies within hierarchies, and they are very much racialised. And then, as I'm suggesting, they're also very internalised. If you do have industrial zones, and there are obviously are in Malaysia, or you do have sort of big projects where there's lots of workers and it can be organised, then they have all these various because obviously the the whole insurgency was also related to the trade union movement. So all those laws are not only about, say, for example, the media, but it's very much about trade unions. And that whole sort of boogeyman of the uh, the communist, the red insurgent, the red demon, the, the atheist, etc., are all still part of the legal system. Because the Internal Security Act, for example, which was set up to do that, even though it was gotten rid of, I think it was in 2008 or nine. but what they've done is they brought it back to be able to fight corruption and terrorism under another name. And that was really to get rid of the communists and trade unionists and anyone that was going to sort of arc up. That law didn't go anywhere. And that law basically means you can be put in jail for two years 
without any trial, whether it's the governor or the magistrate, they, have, they can decide who exactly. And then every two years, your case will come up and they'll decide whether you get another two years or not. So there's no recompense, no ability to appeal, no legal representation. So it's sort of like they can just put, leave you there and just let you rot if you're just going to keep it up. And if you're not and you haven't learned your lesson, then they'll let you back out, whatever, and you just be quiet and don't do anything. Those laws are all there to fight anything they need. And they have a whole lot of legal ones around strikes, etc. You can't strike unless all the workers do this, that, and the other. And they make it so incredibly complicated etc. So when I engaged with trade unions, they were in a building in the sixth floor, one little room, one little person doing some stuff. Now, I'm not saying that's the only version, but it was very marginal, very difficult to organize. A lot of people are in that so-called, you know, the sort of the, the movement of, uh, you know, the street hawkers and a lot of people working in the streets. And even if they do have other jobs and the difficulties of uh, any sort of industrial action or trying to get anything in terms of legislation or that relationship was maybe not impossible, but they put so many different hurdles and et cetera in the way that it's just really, really difficult. Again, it's about this feudal power, not necessarily even the, the global capitalist one, but the more the feudal power power, that central power, the power of the state in terms of its military, media, etc., etc., ability to produce things, is very much centralised in those feudal aristocratic relationships. Anything that's outside that, they don't want to really let anyone get their fingers near it. There is a Socialist Party of Malaysia. I imagine that's pretty small. Yes, I went to visit them and I no doubt, there, and there's some interesting people there, but I think they're also like routed to the eyeballs with various spies and various people going on. So, And you can see, and the most interesting people there, and the people who often I hung out with and sort of engaged with that were very open were the Indian guys, and they're often the backbone of that socialist party, etc. From my sense of just meeting Chinese people, they, their thing was they'd given up any hope of any possibility, even though they're like 20% of society. Indians are like eight. Malay guys are like 60 to 70, depending. The Chinese guys largely given up hope. And they were like, well, the only real game is get a degree or whatever and try and escape, just get out of the country, migrate, move. And the Indian guys were the ones who were more interested. In any level that I saw some sort of social organisation or trying to do things, and it's quite interesting too because when you meet people from the Indian community or even the, some of the older Chinese, even though they're actually Malaysian in the sense that they've lived there for two, three, four, five, six generations, but they actually quite often will look to India or China as their sort of homeland, even though they've never visited it in their life, I mean, for various reasons they can't or couldn't, but I think now they can, but they're just like, oh, what for? <laughs> you know, 20 years ago when I wanted to, I couldn't. So it's really quite interesting. And then the Malays see Malaysia as theirs and the others see it, even though they've been there five, six generations or whatever, so, you know, since the 1830s, 1850s, 1860s, and they're still looking to India. Because, you know, people in Australia that have been here, say, that long, they might say, oh, yes, I have an Irish background or this or that or the other, but it's not that strongly connected because they, they, they have literally been excluded from this other possibility of being Malaysian, so to speak. And then on the other hand, you've got migrants, asylum seekers. Oh, well, that's a total disaster zone. And I actually saw that. And my friend, uh, Dr. Ha, was really happy. She said, what I did, I was just walking along on the train station. I saw this guy just walk up to this guy behind him and just tap him on the shoulder and just very quietly say, passport. And then he just sort of whisked him off. And another guy came up behind him and grabbed him by the seat of his pants, just whisked him around the corner. And I just went, whoa. And my friend said, yeah, yeah. And I'm so glad you saw that because it happens all the time. And people just like, don't believe it happens. And I said, no, nah, I saw it in front of me. It was just in front of me. This guy just, he just looked like that. And they just grabbed him by his, the seat of his pants, like to the top of his belt and just sort of said with us sunshine and it was like they're literally like standing around this train station either undercover or whatever and just sort of swooping on people they think may be illegal immigrants obviously 
poor-looking Malaysian guys, because it's Indonesian, so they look like Malays anyway. These guys are also ones quite often being set up for being executed by the police, and there is a whole sort of program of executions. Actually, they're the ones working on the building sites, and they're the ones working in the 35-degree days with incredible humidity, getting paid the equivalent of a couple dollars Australian a day, expendable if they die, if something sort of large concrete thing lands on them, they just go. And I saw that in the media. There was a whole commentary, four dies died in a ditch, the ditch fell in, they died. No comment on what's going to happen. It was just they died. The idea was pretty much plenty more where that came from. But then they're demonised at the same time as these demons from Indonesia who are coming across on the boat and stealing our jobs, doing the worst jobs in the abattoirs, sex work, taxi driving, construction in tropical heat, not pleasant at all. There's that double bind where they're sort of the enemy, but then they can do all this really shit work and we're happy for them to do it because we don't want to do it. Who wants to stand out and, you know, 35 degree day slaving away? Because they do in the constructions, they don't actually just work in daylight hours. They'll start at, say, six and they'll go till midnight. And I was quite often just horrified, standing there looking at the lights, the system and whatever, and doing crane work and stuff going around and concrete prawls. And it's 11.30 at night with a shitty little light. It's just beyond words. It's 14 stories up, whatever, and you're watching this, just watching the concrete coming around. It's like, how can you even see what's going on? Like, you're looking up and you just shadows, maybe. You know, in the daylight, it's not not that good either, but I'm just saying, in the middle of the night. And these are Indonesian guys, or maybe Burmese, or maybe whatever, but all people that are very marginal and just expect getting a couple of dollars and they just have to do it because otherwise they can't survive, they can't eat, they're just totally in all sorts of dramas. So it's a really difficult bind. What did you do to have a good time? Often hang out in the little India areas. They were the ones that were more sort of open to people. I mean, there's a lot of sort of bars for Westerners, but they all charge exorbitant prices and it's like sort of, I don't know, all these very drunken sort of people rolling around. Do you get... The feeling that you followed or you watched? Oh, no, not really. They didn't need to. At the university, they'd let you know that the sort of special branch guys were sort of watching what you were doing or you were thinking about this and that. But they just sort of keep an eye on the university. And the university is so paranoid because if you bring, a, I don't know, a lesbian Muslim to come and speak or a relative of someone who, an Indian guy who'd been executed by the police or something, they could close the whole university down. So the university's super paranoid about anyone getting a bit a bit sort of bolshy about trying to push a certain perspective or an idea. Now, obviously, I'm not from there and I wouldn't have to wear that because of I can always escape to Australia, etc. But I know the people I was working with, they would actually wear it. And I, so you had to be sort of a bit wary. You can't just sort of go, right, I want to bring in some dude who's going to talk about coppers executed my brother. In Australia, you can do that. But in Malaysia, it's like it's the whole university could be closed down. They can get rid of their license and people freak. So you try and do anything, there's people all over watching. So the special branch guys there are partly special branch in terms of feeding to the state, but they're also feeding to the, the owners of Monash to make sure that no one, especially in the arts department, gets any smart ideas to do something that's going to create some riot or stir or stir up the hornet's nest. Did you get out in the countryside much? Certainly we travelled around. The best place was going to Borneo and seeing some of the wilderness, and but then also seeing all the palm plantations. You know, you see the you know, the adverts and the discussions and people talking about it, when you see the actual, the enormity of how big they are and what it does in terms of monoculture and what it does to, say, elephants and different species of animals, it's quite horrific. What we call a national park, it doesn't quite exist in the same way. So their national parks, if you will, can be large parts of that can end up being palm plantations. They've pulled down the rainforest, whatever, and they've put in the palm plantation and the laws haven't quite changed yet or whatever, or they, the signs haven't quite changed, but it's got these signages and but because there's such big money to be made, 
and there's so many big sort of corporations moving in and Singaporean, Malaysian, Indonesian, and then others as well, that it's just such a big cash crop. So you do get sort of glimpses of incredible wilderness and the sort of primate life and then the, the bird life and the fish and the crocodiles, etc. And it's stunning to see. But also at the same time as that devastation is just going on, it's just like unrelenting sort of the machine, if you will, is just sort of grinding on and what it's doing in terms of other species and, and of course, humans as well, the indigenous people are getting caught up in all that and sort of pulverised, I suppose, and made into palm oil. Finally, column the Linus plant. Was that an issue? In the mainstream media, it doesn't exist. So I only knew about it because of you know stuff around foe or this or that or other people on Facebook. But I, it's actually not an issue in terms of in the Malaysian context. So many different issues, like, for example, the big uprisings that were happening in Thailand, even though they're incredibly complicated, and I don't for one second pretend that I know the, dif- the real fundamental differences between the red shirts and the yellow shirts, but they just wouldn't broadcast them. They wouldn't say there was a big uprising happening in Thailand, i.e. next door, just north, or whatever's going on in Indonesia, big demonstration, three million people, the Labor de- Movement demonstration. You wouldn't get that in the media. There just wouldn't be no discussion where, you know, Jakarta's closed down for half a day because all these workers are doing this and that and the other, which hadn't happened since the 60s. You're not going to get that media in Malaysia. Even the sort of so-called alternative media, like they do try and push certain things, and then there's other things they don't really push that much. Often international news, they don't really have that reach. So it's often internal things they're pushing because they can, they're near it. But things like what's going on in Thailand and really exploring and explaining that doesn't really happen even in the alternative media because they don't really have the resources. They don't really necessarily have the people who are on the, on the ground who can explain how they're taking over the presidential palace and what that means in terms of the cut and thrust of the, the different factions. And, you know, it's, it's complicated, but they don't really have that problem because they just don't cover it. So and the alternative media can't really fill that gap. They can on certain issues inside Malaysia, but the bigger sort of broader context, you know, the currencies and the role of Chinese investment or the role of the Malacca Straits, all these things are never discussed because, you know, you sit in the Malacca Straits, one third of world trade goes through the Malacca Straits. It's one of the most important. Who controls the Malacca Straits controls world trade pretty much. And of course, the Americans do. They have their subs there. They have their second fleet hanging around just in case. And it's all about Singapore. So there's no discussion of that. There's no discussion of the role of that. Why, for example, you know, maybe what happened in Vietnam in terms of the Chinese were hassling out the Vietnamese in the South China Sea. But how much is that really about what's going on in the Malacca Straits? So they're not putting those pieces together. It's not really about the South China Sea. It's really about the Malacca Straits and the movement of oil, especially to China and back, and then how Chinese goods get moved throughout the rest of the world. And Malaysia's right slap bang in the middle of that. But you'll never see that in the media. There's no discussion of that, no recognition, because that's the central sort of geopolitical issue that Malaysia's got. Of course, they talk about it in military circles, whatever, but it's not actually even broached. Even in the so-called alternative media, you don't get that. All these different issues, palm oil, etc., because, you know, it's, it's the, one of the major tax givers in terms of the Malaysian context. So there is not much criticism of palm oil going on. And a lot of the guys, again, the sultans, again, the Umno guys, have major investments. I was teaching business journalism as one of my courses, and I made them read the yearly uh, report of the, some of the big uh, palm oil companies. And they're all mates, literally. The photo is with Najib and all the sort of ruling elite Yumno guys, all hand in hand, and that's how they open their brochure. We are part of the establishment. We are part of Malaysia. And that's how they... But understanding that relationship, and of course, I mean, some of the students got it and some went, oh, that's interesting, and others went, oh, I'm not even going to touch it with an 80-foot pole. But the point being, in, in, in Australia, we have levels of that, but they're even more just... 
don't even sort of pretend. Could you imagine opening BHP and opening it up and there's Abbott and Hockey? Hold on, what are they doing there? So yeah, there's a level of sort of corruption and sort of even unnamed. It's just so normalised now. Of course, in the major corporations' yearly reports, you're going to have photos of Najib because he's our major supporter. Isn't that just normal? And that's sort of, you know, Berlusconi-esque. But, you know, it's been normalised in Malaysia. So even just sort of pointing it out, like it take, you have to explain to the kids and why it actually is a problem because they're like, what's the problem? It sounds as though you've come home for the quiet life. It's a slightly different version, but I think it's really important that Australians do actually engage with Asia, Southeast Asia. I think Keating was right. There's lots of things about Keating I'm not so wrapped on, but I think he's Australian, you know, where white people living in a black land in the middle of Asia, and we've got to deal with these dynamics, and this is part of it, is about actually spending time living, learning the cultures, engaging with other places, and really starting to understand that we are part of Asia and, and living accordingly. And obviously the other issues around the whole indigenous heritage and the ultraviolence that was unleashed in that and never sort of been dealt with as well. But that's another dynamic again. But the point being, I think we, we really need to start engaging with Asia at a whole lot of new levels and not just the level of verbiage, but go and live in those countries, experience, build friendships, build relationships, learn the languages, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera, et cetera. And that was Dr. Colin McNaughton, who spent um, a year and a bit maybe a year and a half, teaching at a university in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. And that's all I have for the program today. Jonathan will be with you in about two minutes. So let's hear from a little few announcements before I say goodbye. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. Just 25 bucks each. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. I will say goodbye now and I'll be back next Tuesday at four o'clock. And as I said, Jonathan will be here in about a minute now. So that's for me next week. Bye for now.